0: Good morning, Redemption. We are fascinated by the weird. My hometown slogan was, Keep Portland Weird. This is some unicycling Darth Vaders with bagpipes and fire (laughs) in kilts. You would see this slogan on bumper stickers and murals across the city, celebrating the eccentric and peculiar the popular show Portlandia lampoons the weirdness of Portland. But we were not alone in this quest for weirdness. Uh, There was actually a war for the weird. The slogan actually originated in Austin, a campaign, campaign to keep Austin weird. There was a competition that developed between Austin and Portland to see which city was actually the weirdest. At one time, they ran a study to try and discern which one, which city was the most tattooed, the most dog-friendly, vegan-friendly, bike-friendly, hippie, hipster-friendly, beer-friendly, green-friendly, whatever, all across the board. And Portland won, I gotta say, which is cool. <laughs> and yet I have found a new contender, a new champion in this quest. Is Bisbee, Arizona. <laughs> I don't know how many of y'all have been to Bisbee, Arizona. my wife and I went there about a week ago. My mom was here in town, and we were like, what the heck is this place? It was crazy. Now, my wife thought it was weird in a spooky kind of way. I thought it was weird in a funky kind of way, but this old mining town about 15 miles north of the Mexican border, up high in the mountains, and you got like all these crazy eccentric homes built up on the hill looking like they're about to fall over on top of you from over 100 years old. You've got like these crazy narrow streets you can barely walk through. It feels like the place you're going to bump into ghosts or aliens or something, and Holly and I were both like, man, Bisbee takes the cake. Keep Bisbee weird. (laughs) It's a weird place. And yet... I find myself asking, why are we fascinated by the weird? I think there's a part of it that we're drawn to things that are countercultural, that cut against the grain. Drawn to things that are unique or particular. This is why we say, don't California my Arizona. We want to keep Arizona unique, right? A sense of the particularity and uniqueness of what it means to be here. And so we're drawn to the weird, partly for this cross, you know, this countercultural element, partly because of the draw to the unique and the particular. And I want to suggest to you this morning that Christianity is actually the weirdest thing out there. It's got them all beat. We are in John 6 this morning, so if you've got your Bible and you want to turn there, we're going to see today that the disciples are weirded out by some things that Jesus says. They want him to try and tone it down to normalize him, to make Jesus a bit more normal. We're going to find that Jesus resists their attempts to lower the bar and make him more normal. Instead, he raises the bar and makes it even stranger. And yet we also find that the strangeness of the gospel is in part the source of its power. The title for the message this morning is Keep Christianity Weird. Let your neighbor know, it's about to get funky. Let's jump in. John 6, verse 53, we read. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that fathers the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum, and when many of his disciples heard it they said, "This is a hard saying. You can listen to it, but Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, "Do you take offense at this?" Well, the disciples essentially tell Jesus here, "You made it weird, right? Like Jesus, you made it weird. We liked the bread maker." Thing when you were feeding the 5,000 and doing the soup kitchen deal. That was all good. But then you went all cannibal lecture on us and started talking about eating my flesh and drinking my blood. What are you talking about, Jesus? Just, we like the bread maker. We just don't want to eat the bread maker. Right? What's Jesus doing? What's going on here? Well, Jesus is saying that the sign he has just done, the feeding of the 5,000, We looked at this two weeks ago, earlier in the passage in John 6. Feed into the 5,000, it's a sign that points to a deeper reality, that we need to feed on him for life. The reality is you cannot sustain your existence on your own. You cannot generate life from within yourself. If you go, try going like 40 days without food, and you'll soon discover you need life from outside of yourself to survive. Similarly, we need Jesus on a deeper spiritual level to receive his life from outside of ourselves in order to survive and be renewed and restored through him. Every week we come to communion, to the bread and the wine, a sign of his body and blood. And this communion that we receive, this is more than just mere remembrance, as I think sometimes some of us think of communion as just mere remembrance, like that photo of Grandpa on the mantle who died back in the war. We can think of it as just a, uh, something that memorializes or remembers the sacrifice in the past that impacts us today. But Christianity has taught throughout the centuries, and the Bible claims, that it's more than just mere, resemb- mere remembrance, it's also true presence. That the ascended Christ gives himself to us, feeds himself to us through this meal. There's mystery here, but that we encounter the real presence of Jesus, that this is a sacrament, a means of grace, something that he has ordained through which he gives himself to us. Now, different Christian traditions differ on how exactly this takes place. Catholics would say that, you know, the bread and wine actually becomes the body and blood. We don't I'll do that here. Uh, Lutherans would say, well, uh, Jesus' presence, it's, it's around, with, and under the elements. Uh, the Orthodox would say, hey, it's mystery. If you over, try and overanalyze it, whatever, it's just uh, you kind of ruin it, so there's just mystery. You receive it in mystery. And Reformed, which we are, so we're a Reformed church, Reformed would say that uh, Jesus, his spirit, communicates his real presence to us as we receive the elements in faith. So while we may differ on how exactly it takes place, though, what all of these traditions agree on is the real presence, that Jesus is truly present and gives himself to us in this meal. And I wonder, do you realize this morning that you need life from outside of yourself to survive, that all of us are on a trajectory towards the coffin, that all of us Don't trick yourself into thinking that you can generate life from within yourself or generate your own existence on your own. No, you need the life that Jesus brings to renew you and restore you. At the heart of Christianity is going, Jesus, I can't do this on my own. Jesus, I need you on my own. I am crumbling to ash. I am on a trajectory that leads to alienation and life apart from you. Jesus, I need you and your life to come within and restore and make me new and make me whole Jesus, we need you. Maybe you have been feeding on others, whether tearing them down or trying to suck the life out of them and it still leaves you left empty and unsatisfied. But Jesus says, my life is inexhaustible. Come and feast on me. I can satisfy your deepest cravings, meet your deepest hungers, with my presence. And I can build you up and renew and restore you and make you whole in the process. Now Christianity is strange, but that strangeness is actually a source of its power. Let me give you a few examples of what I mean. If you were to go out and do some man-on-the-street interviews, right? You got your camera and your microphone, you kind of walk up to a few folks and if you were to go up to them and ask, hey, what is the biggest problem in the world? What's the biggest problem? Maybe you ask one person and they say the biggest problem in the world is global poverty. You ask another person, they say it's sex trafficking. And then you ask a Christian and the Christian's like, the biggest problem in the world is that two naked vegetarians listened to a talking snake and ate a forbidden pomegranate. They're like, what? <laughs> like, you're crazy. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? And yet the strangeness That answer is actually a source of its power. What it's speaking to there is that there is a deeper root beneath the symptoms that we experience in our world. That we were made for life with God, union with God, intimacy with God. But now we live in distance and alienation from God because of our desire to be like God rather than to be with God. And it has poisoned us like that fruit. There is a deeper root beneath the symptoms that we see in our world. Another example, you keep the interview going, you ask someone else, you go, okay, what's the greatest hope for our world? What's the greatest hope for our world? And one person says, education, we just got to get everyone educated. Another person says, "Uh, stimulus check, we just need another stimulus package. Then you ask a Christian, they're like, dude, the greatest source of hope for our world today is that a first century executed Galilean carpenter is coming back on a flying horse with a sword sticking out of his mouth to make everything happy ever after again. Right? And you're like, what? <laughs> that sounds crazy. That sounds strange. But once again, the strangeness is part of the source of its power. So what we're speaking to there is that the one who gave his life for the world is the one who has been exalted to set the world right again. That the one who is willing to sacrifice himself in humiliation and obscurity is the one who God has exalted, who is not only humble enough to atone for our sin, but is powerful enough to set all things right, to renew and restore God's creation again. The strangeness of the gospel is actually a source of its power. Christianity is strange, but true, and it also works. The weirdness of Christianity has actually changed the world. Tom Holland is a renowned British historian. He's written a ton of popular history books, uh, but he used to be skeptical of Christianity and its impact on the world until he began researching it. For a new book, he has a new book that came out this last year, a fascinating book called uh, Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. And one of the things he talks about in this book is how strange Christianity seemed in the ancient world when it first showed up. He says here, The utter strangeness of all this, of Christianity and Jesus, uh, the other strangeness of this, for the vast majority of people in the Roman world did not lie in the notion that a mortal might become divine. It was, rather, that divinity was for the very greatest of the great, for victors and heroes and kings. Its measure was the power to torture one's enemies, not to suffer it oneself. That a man who had himself been crucified might be hailed as a god could not help but be seen by people everywhere across the Roman world as scandalous, obscene, grotesque. Scandalous, obscene, grotesque, or weird. Yet he goes on to say that is this weirdness that changed the world, that today around three billion people worship and follow Jesus, that Christianity became the source for so many things that we take for granted today, like human rights and hospitals, like literacy and education, like the arts and science, things that have happened that are just in the air that we breathe. And he goes on to say this. He says, familiarity with the biblical narrative has dulled our sense of just how completely novel Jesus is. Christianity is the principal reason why, by and large, most of us who live in post-Christian societies still take for granted that it is nobler to suffer than to inflict suffering. It is why we generally assume that every human life is of equal value. And he goes on to document a variety of ways how the strangeness of Christianity revolutionized and remade the world. Now, you might be weirded out, like the disciples were, by some of the things Jesus says. But I would encourage you, challenge you, not to brush them off or to back away so quickly, as rather to press into those areas and bring them to Jesus, because what we find is that the strangeness of the gospel It's related to the source of its power. If God is the transcendent God, the creator of all the universe, and he has broken in, he has broken through the steel vaulted ceiling that we have tried to construct to keep him at bay and he is revealing himself, we should expect that it is strange. What should be shocking is if it was normal and just ho-hum and taken for granted the way we think about it. No, we should expect that when the God of all the universe breaks in and says, here is who I am, here is what you need for life, you should expect, that it would be weird. And the weirdness of the gospel, the things about Jesus that first seem strange, when we press into them deeper, we find that they are actually a source of its power and life, rooted in Christ, our Savior. So, how does Jesus respond to his disciples' question? How does he respond to their concern this weirdness. Well, verse 61 says, says again, But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, he said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. Jesus says here, like you think that's weird, I'm going to make it even weirder. I'm going to show you some stranger things, right? I'm going to show you some stranger things. You'll see the Son of God ascended. The Son of Man ascended to the right hand of God. And Jesus is talking here about his ascension, that he is going to be exalted as Lord of the world, that it is through him that he's the one who can give the spirit and life to us as humanity again, and that the Father can do the miracle in your heart that you need to turn from yourself and turn to the glory and majesty and wonder of Jesus and who he is. This had to sound strange to the disciples back then that this guy standing in front of them, this rejected rabbi, was going to be exalted as the king of the nations and the lord of the world. They had to be going, man, you're weirder than Weird Al Yankovic, Jesus. you awesome. The stranger thing is this, is that Jesus is lord of all. And this means for us that all of life is all for Jesus. So we like to stay around here that we can't compartmentalize faith as if it's just one corner of our life that kind of, you can keep your religion, as our society likes to say, in kind of your own personal sphere, but don't bring it out into the public. And we say, no, all of life is all for Jesus. And following him, loving him, serving him impacts how we relate to all of life. Jesus is Lord of all, and that means this impacts not only what we believe, but also how we live shapes not only our doctrine, but our ethics, not only our metaphysics, but our morality. It's all for Jesus. Now, one of the aspects of Christianity that seems strangest to our society today is our sexual ethic, what we believe about sexuality. Because the LGBT conversation is so loaded, there are many in our culture saying, you guys are wacky. You guys are crazy. You guys are strange. And for many of us as our disciples, as disciples, we don't like the awkwardness. So we want to go, hey, Jesus, can you lower the bar a little bit? Can you make it feel a little less awkward, a little, more, little less uncomfortable? And Jesus, like he did with his disciples back then, he does the same with us today. He says, hey, I'm not going to lower the bar. I'm actually going to raise it. I want to make it feel more weird and more awkward and more uncomfortable that Jesus actually says, not only can a man not have sex with another man, but a man cannot have sex with his girlfriend until they are married. And when they are married, a man cannot have sex with any other woman but his wife. And when they are married, it is going to be married for life. And Jesus says, if that ain't high enough, I'm going to actually raise it even higher and go, it is a problem that you are 1 a.m. in the morning on Pornhub trying to satisfy those deeper cravings in your soul that that's not meant to satisfy. And if you even have lust in your heart, Jesus says in Matthew 5, if you even have lust in your heart, you stand in danger of standing before the judgment of God because of your posture towards God's daughters and sons. When people ask me, do you think homosexuality is sin? My first response is usually, Well, I think American sexuality is sin, right? Like, the problem is much bigger how we think about sex, how we approach sex, the value that we place on it, what we look to it for. The problem is much bigger. Focusing only on gay sex is like focusing on a leaky faucet on the Titanic, right? Like, yeah, there's water getting into the ship, But American sexuality is the Titanic. And there is a breach in the hole and water flooding in everywhere. And Jesus is like, the ship is sinking. Over here with me. And when we do, we find that Jesus once more raises the bar even higher to a stranger thing. And he whispers to us a secret, a radical secret in our society. And he says to us, you actually don't need sex, and romance to lead a meaningful and fulfilling life. And that sounds like heresy today in our culture, right? Because our culture says, you got to have it. If you're not having sex, you're missing out. You are losing out on like the, the meaning and purpose. Man, you are, listen out. Carl Truman, in his excellent new book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, he observes and comments on this lie saying that no one today needs to be told that a movie with the title The 40-Year-Old Virgin is a comedy. The very idea of someone reaching the age of 40 with no experience of sexual intercourse is inherently comic because of the value society now places on sex. To be sexually inactive is to be a less-than-whole person, to be obviously unfulfilled or weird or... Weird. Now, he's not saying this is true. He's just saying this is what society thinks. But here's the thing. Jesus is a 40-year-old virgin, or at least a 33-year-old one. right? Jesus, it is strange to our culture today that the Lord of the world, the one who lived the most meaningful, the most fulfilling life ever on earth, never had sex or romance. And this means that you don't need to either. It means that you don't need romance to fill that hole in your heart because the presence of the Savior can be more than enough. It means that you can lead a meaningful and fulfilling life with rich community and all in for the kingdom. You can be single like Jesus. The strangeness of how we as the church approach our sexual ethic can speak to something even stranger, that Jesus is Lord of the world. Now, the early church was weird too. I find great encouragement in this, that the early church was also weird. Pastor Tim Keller, he observes, uh, draws on some studies of the early church and notes five distinctives that stood out for the early church in the ancient world. Things that made them weird in the eyes of their surrounding society. These were number one, they were known for being generous with the poor. That the Roman emperors of the day, this was an era before social safety nets, and the Roman emperors of the day were saying, Man, they take care not only of their own poor, but ours as well, and they're doing a better job than we do with it. This stood out and seemed awkward and strange. Number two, they stood out because of their emphasis on multi-ethnic community. One of the strangest, most shocking things about early Christianity was the meal. And if you were to come into their Sunday gathering or the meal, what you would find sitting around the table together were slave and free Jew and Gentile, male and female, breaking down barriers of race and class and gender and all coming together equal in status before the lordship of Christ. And that was shocking in an era that was even more stratified and where you didn't hang out with people crossing those boundaries. It was revolutionary in the ancient world. Number three, their sex ethic and approach to family. The Romans were known for being stingy with their money and generous with their sex, while the Christians were known, as the quip goes, for being generous with their money and stingy with their sex. They raised the bar, elevated a much higher sexual ethic than the society around them. They were also known for being pro-life and children. They were famous for adoption and going out and finding the discarded babies and unwanted children and welcoming and receiving them into their homes. They stood against abortion and infanticide that were common back in that day. This stood out in the ancient world. They said, you guys are weird. And finally, they were known for forgiveness and enemy love that even as they were being persecuted and thrown to the lions, they prayed for those who persecuted them and witnessed to Jesus who gave himself for them while they were still his enemies. These five characteristics made the church look weird. And when we hold to all five, it still makes the church look weird today. Keller observes how tendencies today is if one leans left politically, you tend to like number one and two, but start to squirm around number three and four, right? Like we tend to like, talk about generosity with the poor and multi-ethnic community, but tend to start to squirm when it comes to talking about the sexual ethic or being pro-life. And if you lean right politically in our society today you tend to like three and four but get suspicious of one and two like we tend to like talk about like sexual ethic being pro-life like all right now we're getting to the real stuff but start to get suspicious when we start talking about generosity caring for the poor the sick the hurting and multi-ethnic community and nobody in our society likes number five Like, nobody likes forgiveness and enemy love, especially these days, it seems. But here's the thing. Faithfulness to Jesus means all five. It requires all five. And so we are gonna be a weird church, church. We are gonna press into all five of these. We are gonna be about all five of these as the people of God because of faithfulness to Jesus We are going to be about one and two, even if people accuse us, as some people are of saying, dude, they're abandoning the Bible for social justice. Now, it's true. There are some influential versions of social justice out there that are unbiblical, but biblical justice is always social because it involves God's vision for a just society and how we as his people are to live for it. So we are gonna press into God's vision. We are gonna press deeper into a biblical vision out of faithfulness to Jesus and live into that as his people. And we are gonna press into three and four, even though some people might say, Man, you guys are repressed bigots, right? We're going, no, we love everyone. Our goal is to lay our lives down for those who dislike us and think we're weird, whatever. And yet, we believe that sex is sacred, that it is designed as a window to point to these greater things, ultimately the reality of Christ and his church. So in faithfulness to him, we are going to live faithfully in this area. We are gonna live faithfully to Jesus even if it means people think we're weird. My question this morning for you is which one weirds you out? Which one weirds you out? Because my assumption is that for most of us today, there is probably some of these that we like, and there's probably one or two that makes us start to squirm a little. My question is, Man, is there some that get you excited, but one that starts to weird you out a bit? And my challenge or invitation for you is to first, it's okay to acknowledge that, own it, but let's bring that to Jesus this year. We as a people, as a church, we're going to press into these this year. We have some uh, prayer and action groups that are launching, where you can jump in with others working in areas like pro-life, working in areas like community justice reform and more that are coming up? I encourage you, those can be great areas to step in and get involved with. We have got events and resources coming up that are gonna help us press deeper into a biblical vision for these things so that we can walk maturely with Christ in an era where there's a lot of cultural confusion and stuff going on. We wanna be equipped to live faithfully to Christ in this moment. But we're gonna be weird this year (laughs) and one of the reasons I think some of us don't wanna be weird is because we want to belong. We want to belong to a tribe, and in our tribalized society, tribalized moment where things are so uh, pulled and extreme, we wanna belong, we don't wanna stand out, we don't wanna feel weird, but the gauntlet I wanna lay down for you this morning, the challenge that I wanna lay down for you is to make the church your tribe, and Jesus our chief. We're going to make the church our tribe and Jesus our chief, and we're going to press in to faithfulness to him in all these areas. Not because we're trying to be whatever to anyone, but we're trying to be faithful to Jesus who has been so faithful to us. Okay, so where do we find the strength to stay weird? When it gets hard, why do we stay in it when it gets tough? Well, in verse 66, read this. It says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus, we're going to another church down the street. (laughs) You're getting too weird for us. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet, one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. We find here that you can embrace the weird when you realize that Jesus is where life is found. Experiencing life in Jesus Allows you to embrace the weird. You know, Jesus is a curious cure. When Peter says, Where else can we go? You alone have the words of life. It's in Jesus, you're weird, but you work. <laughs> like you get the job done. There's healing and there's life that's found in you. And there are some curious cures, there are healing. It's healing that can be found in some strange places. If you consider penicillin, uh, penicillin grows in mold. I wonder who the first person was that had an infection, and his buddy was like, dude, just go look that mold over there. (laughs) Or tobacco, there are proteins in tobacco that have been found extremely effective in fighting cancer, killing cancer cells. And it's ironic that tobacco, this very thing that can cause a lot of cancer, also has something within it that can defeat cancer. ASU researchers have found promising signs when it comes to autism uh, and a treatment that deals with some of the effects of autism, found promising signs with fecal transplants, right? Like taking feces and pills and you swallow it and it affects the bacteria in your gut. And so they're exploring and researching this, but that's a strange place to find healing. I wonder with blood transfusions, like who was the first person who was like, I know, like, take that guy's blood and let's put it in that guy, right? That's weird. <laughs> if you're out camping and you see some aspen trees, the bark and leaves actually contain something that works like aspirin. And see, that had to be strange. You, buddy, chew on that bark for a bit, right? There are some curious cures, some healing that can be found in strange places, and Jesus is a curious cure, that he may, though he may seem strange on the outside, when you press in, you find there is healing on the inside of life together with him. This is what keeps you in it. When we say like Peter You are the holy one of God, Jesus, life is here. And so I don't care how crazy it makes me look. I don't care how strange my neighbors think I am. I don't care how weird the world says I am. I wanna be in life with you, Jesus. Where else can we go? Because in you alone, I have found life. You find the strength to stay in it when you experience the life that Jesus brings. Now, Judas' problem, He wants to make Jesus normal. Jesus says, hey, I chose you, the 12, but one of you is the devil. Right? Talking about Judas Iscariot. Judas wanted a typical Messiah. He wanted a Messiah who would come in power and make his followers prosperous. Judas was a lover of money. We read read later in John's Gospel. He was stealing from the disciples' bank account. And eventually, when Jesus didn't meet his expectations for a normal Messiah, he sold him out for 30 pieces of silver. When you try to make Jesus normal, you betray him. When we try to make Jesus normal, we betray him. When we try to sandpaper off the sharp edges, when we try to get around the hard sayings, we end up not with Jesus, but with a a reflection of ourselves. So stop trying to shape Jesus into your image and start being shaped by his. Start being shaped by his. Well, one more thing. I know I've been going here a bit, but this is the last thing, and I think this is important. I found myself reflecting this week, what if we are the weird ones? Like what if you and I, what if we're the weird one? What if we only think God seems strange because we assume that we're normal? You know, the word weird is actually an acronym that researchers use to describe people who are Western, educated, industrialized, rich and democratic from these type of countries, right? And the reason they use this acronym is to describe a phenomenon where they said, you know, when doing research, maybe in psychology or anthropology, when when doing research on the world, 80% of the research tends to be done with weird people, right, like Western, all these folks, Uh, even though we're only like 12% of the world's population. But then we just assume that's universal for all humanity. And the problem was, we started going out and saying, actually, no. We're actually not as normal as we think we are, right? Like you step into the world and you start finding that some of the implications of the results often don't work because the majority of the world often doesn't look at many things the same way we do, whether that is sex, or marriage, or family, or community, or identity, or personhood, or all these things. When you actually look on the global and historical scene of history, we are the oddballs, right? We are the weird ones. So one challenge becomes like, Dude, you think you're normal, and so then you go out and you assume everyone else is weird, but then you actually step back and go, wait a minute, maybe we're the weird ones, right? Similarly, I think we can assume that Jesus is weird because we assume that we're normal. But the reality is you're not as normal as you think you are. Everyone's normal until you get to know them, as the saying goes, right? when we make God our bar for what normal is, we begin to realize how weird we are, right? When we make God the bar for normalcy and we look at Jesus, we begin to discover, man, how weird and eccentric and peculiar and strange we can actually be. But the beauty of the gospel is that God embraces the weird because God embraced you. God said, I'm gonna keep Christianity weird because I'm keeping you in it, (laughs) And so you and I, we can embrace the weirdness of Christianity because God embraced the weirdness of us. Now as we come to communion this morning, we come to Jesus, our curious cure, our strange salvation. We come to the bread and the wine, a sign of his body and blood, the one who said, eat my flesh and drink my blood, find your life in me. We come to the Lord of all, saying we want to give all of who we are to all of Jesus, all our life for all of Jesus. And we come to the Savior who embraced the weird, you and I, in order that we could be joined to him. Forever. So if you are a follower of Jesus, this meal is for you. Stick the bread, a sign of his body given, and you may receive that now. Now, stick the wine or the juice, a sign of his blood shed, and you may receive that. Would you join me in prayer?